Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Sam Maxima on the right wing, beats his man into the box, heads it in. Oh, yes! It's Callum Wilson against West Ham again. That's a free header, isn't it? Hello and welcome to Pod on the Time, your go-to Newcastle United podcast from The Athletic. Coming up this week... Still Joel Linton, into the bottom corner! West Ham United 1, Newcastle United 5. All we do is win, win, win. Nine points in six days for House Champions League chasers. The Athletic have obtained Boris Johnson's emails. Sort of. What, if anything, does it mean for Newcastle United? And Langley's lasses hold their fate in their own hands just about as they head to St James's Park. Hello everyone, this is Pod on the Tyne. I am Taylor Payne. Jacob, as we speak, is hurtling up the M1 somewhere on his way back north. Uh, so he'll be back soon on the pod. But in the meantime, I've got two lovely chaps with me. Senior writer George Colgan, first of all. Hello George, how are you? I'm very good. Happy belated Easter to everybody. And what a week it's been for Newcastle. God, astonishing. Been at all three of those games. Seen different sides of this team and this club. But my goodness, what a, what a week it's been. It's been incredible, hasn't it? And Christopher Woff, how the devil are you, sir? You're all right. Uh, yes, happy Easter, everyone. I ha- went to, to see some of my family on Friday, and they were very offended that I hadn't told them about fainting in the hospital. So thank you, George, for the the, the reveal of that was on <laughs> on the podcast. So that was that was very much in this sort of Easter spirit there. But then, yes, I was I was at the Man United game, watched the West Ham game from home, but then I was down for the Brentford match, and on the train from Kew Gardens. To Vauxhall on the way back, Josh Campbell, who is a listener to Pod on the Town, came over to me. Very merry. I wish I'd been in uh, in his merry state. Uh, it was very complimentary about the podcast and gave me. We uh, just said how much he enjoys it, so I just wanted to give him a bit of a shout out. So yes, and uh, I hope the hangover wasn't as bad as I suspect it probably was. Oh, lovely stuff! Thanks for listening, Josh. That's great. I don't know about you lads, but it feels weird that there isn't a game of football being played today by Newcastle United. It felt like. There's been one every two or three days for the last six months. That's what it feels like. I know that's not the case, but I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do with myself. Just wait till next season. There will be a game every, every other day. If Newcastle get into Europe, it'll feel like we'll just be travelling, watching, travelling, watching, recording the odd podcast. Um, no, it's been a it's been a busy week. I just oh, it's just so great that they've got out of that week. A couple of really testing. Testing away matches in there, but they came out of it with flying colours. And as I say, we've we've like seen different elements to the to the team and the club, which has just been um, just been fantastic. It has. Well, what a week it was. We've now gone five wins in a row, uh, three wins in the space of seven days. Essentially, let's review Wednesday night's win at West Ham first. Uh, five stars, George. You would say a five goal haul and five stars for the lads. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. I mean, they they were so good against Manchester United. That was sort of almost the kind of complete victory against a really good it team. Was. And it, it was a very different kind of game. Newcastle did something which I think they do. They they seem to do this every match. They give the opposition a really good chance in the first couple of minutes, and yeah. that's the moment you think, "Oh no, this is the one. This is the one." And it was when Bowen sort of tore down the right-hand side and got that got that sort of ball into the box. He thought, oh, Jesus, this is going to be a long night. And then by the end of it, the stadium's empty. Yeah, Newcastle are sort of celebrating in front of their own fans. The few West Ham fans that are left are uh, calling, calling out their manager. And one of those, in, you know, indelible images of the night is... is is Wilson scoring his second goal, wheeling away from goal with the bubbles still in the air, those bloody bubbles. It's nothing funnier, is there? It is such a shit place to watch football. And I say that both <laughs> as a journalist and as a fan. It's a terrible place to watch football. It's a sort of anti-football stadium, it feels like to me. Newcastle were not brilliant, but to come away with that 
result, um, uh, a win which rivals anything they've done in the Premier League. Just absolutely fantastic. Just to follow up on that, it's also a rubbish place to watch football on TV, though, because the the cameras are so far away yeah, and at an angle. Yeah. The, the pitch is like flat. Yeah. Now I know you always struggle for perspective anyway when you watch on TV, but you have none whatsoever when you when you see West Ham game. It was just it's just rubbish. It really is rubbish. It's just generally an awful place for football, isn't it? Let's be honest. But if you're a Newcastle United fan, you put five goals in the net against West Ham. That's brilliant, isn't it? And speaking of nice images, George, as well, the one of Alexander Isak standing with his hands on his hips yeah, next to yeah. Lucas Fabianski, like they're waiting for a bus yeah. as he watches the ball sail into the net for that for that goal. That was just superb, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So if you haven't seen that and you're on Twitter, have a look. There's been some very funny memes about that. Sort of like the pair, both both Isak and and the West Ham keeper sort of standing outside Greg's looking in, or both of them standing <laughs> in an art gallery look, uh, admiring a painting. And the chippy cue. Yeah. yeah, it was just it was just brilliant. And again, you know, something that really stood out for me, something I asked Eddie Howe about afterwards, was that theme that was in keeping with the Manchester Manchester United match where, you know, Newcastle forced the opposition into making mistakes. There was some brilliant work from from Jacob Murphy and then obviously Isak chasing down that long ball um before the goal. You know, they're capable of doing that and that's one of the beautiful things about this team that even when things aren't going their way and things did go their way at West Ham but you know they're capable of forcing other teams to make mistakes like that just really good it's interesting isn't it Chris that we went through that period where it it seemed like we were struggling to hit the target and struggling to put the ball in the net and suddenly Newcastle United have started to become ruthless again now it doesn't mean that they're not missing chances because they are and there was a few in the West Ham game and there was a few in the Brentford game which you know should have put them out of sight but they're starting to put the ball in the, in the net again. Joe Willock's finest touch. Joe Linton's putting the ball away when in the past they were maybe missing those opportunities. Yeah, and that was... I mean, the thing at West Ham was, as George said, Newcastle forced some of those goals, but equally, West Ham were appalling. And some it's of the sort worst of, defended it, yeah, I've seen from sort of, any team this season. It, it's sort of difficult to know where that sort of line was because I also think that part of the reason why West Ham was were appalling was because they didn't quite know how to defend against Newcastle because Newcastle could go wide, they could yeah. go through the middle, they could go short. They had so many different ways of being able to play. And obviously in Callum Wilson, they've got someone who suddenly has, has rediscovered that form and always scores against West Ham. Duncan Alexander, our sort of stats guru who was at Opta previously, worked out that in terms of the difference between a goal scorer's second favourite opposition to score against and their favourite opposition, he is now joint top for having the gap. I think it's six goals he's got between West Ham and the, the next most prolific team he scores against. But he look I mean he looks back to his best and that has made such a difference having two forwards who could could easily lead the line for just about any Premier League side now and uh, looking like they can score goals every opportunity, create goals for each other. They exposed that 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 terrible West Ham defending. I mean the Joe Linton one shares M- miss hit pass the most beautiful <laughs> the most beautiful through ball that has ever been played in the history of football Chris I think you'll find yes exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but Newcastle <laughs> did as you say the profit and 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 they were and they were ruthless Joe Linton has scored some wonderful goals over the course of the last week uh, including kicking it off uh, Raya's leg we'll get on to that um and it's it's very different to the sort of period in 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 January February where you just thought every single time there was an opportunity for Newcastle they were going to waste it. Now yeah. they are missing chances, as you say, but they are also taking some and at important moments where I think it's actually more demoralising for the opposition to do what they did to West Ham immediately after the restart to make it three one in the fashion that they did. Yeah, killed the game as a contest, and it meant that that positive momentum which West Ham had generated at the end of the first half just absolutely evaporated. We've got our Callum Wilson back, haven't we? We've got the player that we thought we had, we knew we had before the World Cup. Just brilliant to see. I mean, one thing that I I sort of wanted to mention as well, there were some question marks when uh, Eddie Howe kept the same team from Forest to to Manchester United. And this time he made a couple of changes, bringing... You know, bringing in Wilson and Gillington for Isak and Willock, both of whom had been exceptional against yeah. Manchester United. I know Willock had had a bit of a knock, but it worked. It worked, and we'll come on to talk talk about Brentford. But at, at Brentford, Wilson came on as if he was furious. I mean, furious in a good way, but it was that like spasm of electricity and energy and anger that electrified Newcastle at Brentford. And to have these two players now, who also showed that they can 
play together at Brentford too, which is very exciting. But to have these changes um, and to have those players, but yeah, it's just fantastic to have Wilson back, aggressive, shithousing a bit, making a nuisance of himself. I love the way he does that. He was doing that again at Brentford, um, you know, getting in the way of the keeper and doing all the rest of it. But to have him back in this kind of form is such a bonus. Absolutely, it is, and we we've heard about this sort of thing with Alexander Isak a few weeks ago, Chris, where Howe told him to empty the tanks and then put his hands up when he's done. And this concept of sort of sixty-minute players, players running themselves into the ground for sixty minutes and then being swapped out—it's it's, it's a, a tactic that Howe's employed in the last few games, isn't it? He has, and we've gone from a stage of where there was injuries, to, for example, when Alan Saint-Maximin was injured and Isak were both out for a long period of time. Callum Wilson's not been fully fit. Anthony Gordon didn't sign until January. And there was a period where you thought Newcastle have a strong first eleven here, maybe one or two players on the bench, but they haven't really got the players to change it up. Suddenly, now Howe has those options and he's using them and he's using them early and he's using them in a bold, aggressive way. He went to Man City and decided to bring on three players on the hour mark. It almost changed the game. Unfortunately, they didn't quite get the goal and then Man City scored, but but that was yeah. a positive change to do that. As you mentioned, he'd said about Isak the other week that he, he couldn't necessarily start game, so he then takes him out of the team midweek, switches it around, brings Wilson in, and you, you suddenly have two completely different front threes, and that's not even including Miguel Almiron, Newcastle's top scorer, who is out for a few weeks. And that is what's great. Newcastle have that strength and depth. That's what they're going to need going forward. It's what they needed previously. And it means that to play the way that Howe wants to play, I mean, I termed it in an article last week, Howe Ball, whether that's a thing, he probably won't like that. As a, as, Are you going to make that term. a thing, I'm Chris? I'm going to make it a thing, yeah. You're going to beat this into the ground, aren't you, I Chris, am. until I'm nobody <laughs> wants to hear it ever again. I very much am. Um, and to, to, to play that in the ultra-aggressive way, certainly three times within a week, I don't think any player, no matter how fit they are, can do 270 Mm, minutes inside six days doing that. And so it means that they need to change that. And whether that's that you have a player who starts, gives an hour and does that, and then you have half an hour off the bench or as it was at Brentford, two players came out at half time and really emptied the tank, as, 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 as Howe put it uh, there. That is the way, and no team has found a way to cope with it yet. Um, and that is why he needs depth. That is why Newcastle are so successful. That's why they're forcing mistakes from West Ham, from Manchester United and others. And yes, it's, it's, it's almost like Newcastle had this style at the start of the season, and you almost saw in the last 10 to 20 minutes of games, quite often they tire a little bit, whereas now with options, suddenly you just have this second wave coming. Just the other thing I wanted to mention before we move on, I've never seen Eddie Howe look as angry as he did during the first half at West Ham. And that's extraordinary when living, you think about he? it. It was 2-0, two 2-0 nil, two nil up. Nick Pope's going down for quote-unquote treatment. And um, and Hal calls um, Hal calls his players over to the touchline. He was raging. He was, he was absolutely raging. I mean, by the end of the night, the idea of Newcastle and Fury is like, it's nonsense, it's ridiculous because it's been... You know, it's been such a massive win. But Chris actually sent me a message when it went to 3-1. Newcastle had converted all three of their shots on targets into yeah. goals. So it was one of those kind of nights. But it is worth remembering that moment in the first half because he was annoyed and he was annoyed with standard slipping. He said he, he thought they looked tired. Um, but They were quite sloppy at the back as yeah, well. Yeah, they the were sloppy. Was appalling yeah, the they, they were sloppy. So that's what I mean when we've seen this sort of, we've seen this kind of contrast in matches and performances. Yes, by the end of, by the end of the week, it's nine points. By the end of that game, it was this, um, it was this huge victory. But, you know, they, they, they actually had to come back from a pretty difficult situation to get through to that point. He said, and he said, Anger is an important emotion to have as a manager, and he was. He was absolutely blistering there on the touchline. He was apoplectic with rage, wasn't he? I don't think I'd want to be on the end of an angry Eddie Howe. Anyway, no. And then, uh, and then, and then, by the end of it, Taylor, there was this sort of bastardization of a song which sort of accompanied Newcastle for a lot of the first half of the season. Newcastle fans singing, "Tell me, Marmy, Mar, we won't be home for tea. We're going to Wembley." And at West Ham, it was, it was, we're going to Italy. And you know, the more, the yeah. more the game goes on, you get to the end of this week, and it's, you know, you can't, so we can't like dodge this anymore. Can't ignore it anymore, even can if, you? Even if we could. And, you know, some, the, the the kind of the piece that I wrote after West Ham was all about that. So the idea, you know, the idea of being here we are in spring, a time which in the Ashley era felt, you know, you were either fighting relegation or there was nothing to play for if you were lucky. And here Newcastle are right in the, at the top, in the mix, 
pushing for Europe and just to have this feeling now of there being something positive to play for is just so fucking brilliant. It's oh, brilliant. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Right, let's have a little cheeky break and then we'll be back in a minute to talk about Brentford. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So, to Brentford, this one really didn't get off to a good start, did it, Chris? Uh, You were uh, in the press box, George was in the away end. It all went a little bit wobbly in the first half, didn't it? It did, and just before I get onto that, it's interesting that George mentions the anger from Howe because he was asked after after the Brentford game whether he'd felt the same anger at half-time at Brentford, and he said that he didn't. Mm. He said he felt he needed to help the players because they'd been through emotionally physically mentally so much over the course of that week that he was he needed to f- help try and find a way to get back them get back into the game because during the first half they were completely outplayed by Brentford yeah. they knew what Brentford were going to do but they didn't have the answers for it there was sort of long balls second balls Ivan Tony winning a heck of a lot um, Sharda ran Sharda, rings round, I mean Sharda was just rapid. Oh, he's so good. Yeah, and and there was obviously the early goal, which was which was disallowed. Big poke made a really good save from Janssen, and then Tony follows up. Turns out he's just offside. Then Brentford got, which I have to be honest, I didn't. Is football going soft? I mean, are you not allowed to completely wipe someone out in the box uh, and and just make sure they're getting nowhere near the goal as Sven Botman did for? It, hey, it wouldn't have been a penalty in my day, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Chris, Chris, so, I, 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 like, you know, the other penalty obviously sort of received all of the attention with, like, the VIR, VIR shambles nonsense. Newcastle should have given away five penalties for that one challenge. I mean, it was like, it was the most, it was the biggest, most obvious penalty you can ever you could ever imagine. If you look at the replay on it, you can see Sven Botman's face a split second before he gets there, just going, oh, no. <laughs> well, he, even Howe said afterwards, I've he was asked... this tour and, wrong. He, and he was, like, surprised that anyone... He was like, yeah, it's Stonewall. He said it should have been two penalties. I mean, yeah. I mean... Burns caught upfield. Fabian Cher gets pulled out wide and gets completely what done by Sharda. Yeah, and then, actually, totally. I think Sharda's poor touch leads to Botman making the challenge like that because he makes a poor touch. He thinks he can touch. get there, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he makes a poor touch and, and then it just completely wipes him out. Um, and Nick Pope comes to Newcastle's rescue. First uh, Premier League goalkeeper to save a penalty from Ivan Tony. I think it's the first he's missed Amazing. since he was at Peterborough. Uh, just stood up and just just dropped on the ball, which are, but a lot of keepers have tried to do that. I was speaking to Jay Harris, our Brentford report, and he says a lot of keepers have tried to do that and failed, and so he managed to do it. Yeah. Then there's the more controversial penalty that comes up when at the front post there's a there's a there's a challenge between Rico Henry and Alexander Isak, and I can see your reaction there, Taylor. And I I don't think the penalty should have been given by VAR because I think it should be an on-field decision. The issue I had was that it sort of summed up Newcastle in the first half and that Isak was at second late and that was like everything yeah. else in the rest of the game. Yeah. It was clumsy. I don't think it was a penalty in terms of it should have been overturned and VAR. I think it's a one that should have that should have stuck with the referee's decision on the field. Uh. Although the opposite, I would say to that is the referee thinks it's a corner and it isn't. So therefore, if he thinks there isn't any contact, I can see why he does then overturn it. It just takes far too long, as the offside did. I thought it was a bit of a lazy challenge from Isaac. I thought if he's if he's on his toes, he gets across his man and he gets the ball clear, but he's kind of just wafted his leg at it, hasn't he? And and if the ref's not given that on the pitch, I don't see how VAR can take 20 replays and nearly two and a half minutes to make that decision and then still say that it's a clear and obvious error. To me, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, I agree. I agree with all that. I just thought that the actual incident itself summed up Newcastle face off. Then Tony goes and scores and Brentford are ahead and they should be further ahead. And really, Newcastle are fortunate to be going in at half time like that. And it's interesting if you listen to Alexander Isak's NUFC TV interview after the game, he's asked yeah. about his own performance. And he basically says, "Oh, yeah, I, I wasn't, I wasn't pleased with myself. I didn't put myself about enough. I didn't, I didn't lead the line well enough." And Brentford had their three centre backs, and basically Isak was quite isolated. Yeah. And so Howe was very bold at half time. He didn't just bring on two players. He completely changed the system, a system which he likes to stick with. He likes his four three three, but instead he went to more of a four two three 
3-1 almost. Jacob Murphy came off, Sean Longstaff came off, neither of whom were necessarily any worse than anyone else on the pitch, but they maybe fatigued, maybe just the way that he wanted to switch things up. Yeah. Gordon went right wing. Joe Willick went left wing, and I didn't think he looked overly comfortable there, actually. I thought he was a one-player second half who maybe didn't look overly comfortable. Then Isak is the number 10, and Wilson up front, and they're just terrorising him. I mean, Wilson was superb, just throwing himself about, running the channels, holding the ball up, laying on his teammates, and that just completely changed from a first half when Newcastle had no answers to what Brentford were doing. Suddenly, they were the ones posing the questions, and Brentford themselves didn't seem to know how to cope with it. And George Wilson showed that he knows how to bully defenders, he knows how to get into people's heads and he did that brilliantly as Chris just said there and laid on the goal for Alexander Izak but he must have had a massive confidence boost off that game against West Ham in midweek and he's came back in all guns blazing hasn't well, he? It was amazing I, I mean it, to be to be in the away end for that for that sort of 20 minutes at the start of the second half was just it was just sensational it was brilliant I mean they have been leggy they looked tired it just felt like a game too far I should always give you know Brentford credit as well because they're a such a good club and they're a really good they're a really good team but the you know the fantastic thing about Newcastle at the moment is that they're they're a very very good team and I mean that in the you know in the, the the true meaning of the word they can overcome these hurdles they've got the quality to do it but they've got the mentality to do it as well but it sort of was nonsense really when you compare it to what had happened beforehand that's why it was so funny that's why it was so good because it was it was ridiculous and they just look like a completely different team. Suddenly, th- these two players made everybody else look less tired. And yeah, I mean, very good. I thought Gordon Gordon added to it as well. We should probably mention his little strop at yeah. the end. I mean, Chris, on that. Chris and I had a chat about that. Obviously, you know, no player likes to likes to come off if you've come on as a come on as a sub. It's one of those things. But there was like thirty seconds left, and Newcastle were trying to, you know, were just trying to see the see the the win out. I mean, I could see it from where I was. It was right in front of Chris. I could see it where I was and I was like pointing to it and sort of asking about it. And then, you know, saw saw how I have to turn back to him and say something to him. And then at the end, very pleasing to see that I think first Matt Ritchie and then Kieran Trippier were talking to him. He looked absolutely devastated, did Gordon. But part of me you know, part of me does like that. You don't want sort of those disciplinary things, but at the same time, he was so devastated to miss the last twenty seconds of of the match. I enjoy. I kind of like that. I like that. I don't. I don't mind that too much. Um, it's not like he was shit and was hauled off because he was bad and all the rest of it. He'd come on and was decent and just wanted to be on the pitch. I don't mind a player being passionate and not wanting to be taken off, but there's a time and a place to do it. And if he wants to have a word with Eddie Howe afterwards and say, look, you made me look like a fool there, then he can do it. I mean, who am I to deny Matt Ritchie an appearance fee as well? Which you know, but like, I I think Gordon's been a little bit petulant there. Oh, it was immature. He probably, it was he immature. probably could have. He, he probably regrets it looking back. Yeah. I would say, but I think Howe's within his rights to say, "Look, you sit your ass down. You know, I've, I've took you off. That my my word is law. Get your ass on the floor and and don't." set your lip up to us basically I think he did the right thing I thought about you Chris I actually missed it at the, at the time I was sort of trying to file something immediately post the game and then uh, the people in the press box and so I watched the incident back I just think that have a bit of nous about the moment of the game that you're in he wasn't being hooked because it was yeah. it was 30 seconds to go I, I, I accept all of the stuff about passion and people say no it's great he doesn't want to be taken off but it's like as you say, you can you can show that in a different way. You don't have to basically almost swing your manager's arm away. It was like that. that try was and rip re- your shirt off. Yeah, that was really really <laughs> odd. I just I just found the whole thing a, a little bit bizarre. Um, and I don't know if that sh- I don't know if that sort of put a, da- a downer on what was. Uh, he seemed to get a lot of praise from a lot of people for, for his performance. I thought he was all right when he came on. I mean, he, he was certainly had a, a heck of an engine about him. I thought he made a few strange decisions at points with the ball. And maybe that's where his frustration came through. But I do think there's a time, and I'm, I, I wasn't a massive fan of it. No, no, I'm not saying I'm a massive fan of it. I'm just sort of saying I thought it was sort of quite interesting, and I, I think it was sort of sweet in some ways. I mean, I know that's not maybe that's not the right word, but anyway, mm. they had a lovely cuddle walking off the pitch, yeah. after, and they stood in front of the fans for ages at the end, listening to fans sing E I E I E I O of the Premier League we go, and some of them joining in. And um, yeah, just a, that lovely moment of communion at the end. I'm sure he regrets it. I'm not trying to say that yeah. um, I approve of it. I just sort of think it's an interesting insight that 
he was so desperate to stay on the pitch. That was all. Uh, it was a great day for Eddie Howe, though, and this is what he said afterwards. Well, you need all different types of ways to win, and I think today was a huge moment in our season because you're you're one nil down half time at a really tough ground, and we hadn't been in that position many times this season. So the challenge to the players was: can we can we come back? Have we got the strength, of character? Have we got the physicality to deliver a, a huge forty five minutes? And right from the whistle, I think of that second half, we looked a totally different team. Yeah, I don't, you you can't do that if your players aren't absolutely in tune with what they need to do and you're not built with some incredible characters and they went very deep this week so full credit to them and we mentioned the changes at half time and one of the sort of interesting well one of the ones I found interesting I imagine you two probably didn't because I'm now going to talk about double pivots but <laughs> was the decision when he moved to 4-2-3-1 was to, to move Joel Linton who this week has played as a left-sided forward has played as a left-sided number eight a right-sided number eight and then was moved to be the alongside Bruno Gimaraes and the two in that 4-2-3-1 yeah and it, I asked how about sort of Joel Linton because obviously he forces the first goal he completely sits Ben Mee down in the box and then and then puts it through Raya's legs goes in off off Raya uh, is, is is cross shot whatever you want whatever you want to call it it was a cross and he was Across, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it was. He, yeah. he was given. Apparently, he was annoyed afterwards that he wasn't given the goal. But so it was no, it's not good. no, no right to be annoyed whatsoever. <laughs> no, that was a pass. No, but but <laughs> how said he'd given Joel Linton the license to move forward. But actually, part of the reason he'd moved him into that deep line role was to try and deal with Ivan Tony in the air because Newcastle hadn't. Yeah, and to have that extra physicality, that extra height. For certainly the first 25 minutes of the second half, that wasn't really an issue, and Joel Linton was coming forward. And I just think, I found it so surprising that Howe didn't start him against Man United, and obviously he was totally correct to do so, the way that the game moved out. But you can see why he's so important to this team, regardless of where he plays Joel Linton. Howe praised him again afterwards and said how much he brings and that he wants to fit him in somewhere. The, the post-Howe appointment and the and jo, the Joe Linton story, I know we've touched on it so many times, but I still just can't quite get my head around it. I mean, it was Brentford last season where it sort of really started to come to fruition because he scored there. Yep. And, and the way end compl- chanted the entire game, chanted his name. But just remember the Brentford game during lockdown and when they were still in the championship when he was awful in Newcastle, when Newcastle lost in the in the Carabao Cup quarterfinal. Yeah. And to see where he is now, I just think it's it's absolutely staggering and a wonderful, wonderful story. Yeah, He can do anything, that man. A Swiss Army footballer. Yeah, yeah. He, can do, he can do anything. But singing, sing, singing that song, you know, he's Brazilian and he cost 40 million at the time, you know, the time of that that song started. It, that was a sort of source of irony. It was like, it was a joke. And now he, he only cost 40 million. Actually feels like an accurate... Appraisal of where he is. He's been sensational. He's been sensational. What a story. Jolinton! Um, and also, uh, it sounds like we might be facing the bees again in July. Uh, good preparation for a Champions League campaign, possibly, Chris. Yes, Newcastle are going to be in the Summer Series, which is a new Premier League pre-season tournament. In baseball, are we? Well, exactly, exactly, yes. So there's a... There's uh, there's going to be six Premier League teams going. One of the, one of whom at the minute is provisionally leads, but that depends on on whether they survive. Then there's going to be Chelsea, Brentford, mm. uh, Newcastle, and 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 the. It's going to be in the East Coast time zone in the US. We don't know exactly where yet. It had been suggested that it's going to that it could be Atlanta and Philadelphia and a few places like that, but not none of that's been fully confirmed. But Newcastle are going to the US. That's where they, they're going to be, and that is part of also that their strategy to increase their awareness to to increase commercial deals. Obviously, Darren Eels was the president uh, of Atlanta United. He's Newcastle's CEO now. He knows the market very, very well. Yeah. And so, yeah, that that's going to be where they are ne- next summer. I don't think it's necessarily, if you'd asked Eddie Howe exactly what he would want to do in a preseason, what he would pick. But I did ask him about this a few months ago when I asked him about the Amazon documentary and, and do, do you as a manager basically need to accept that you have to, at some point, compromise between what you see as the ideal preparation you would want as a manager and actually the financial side that you could... And he replied saying, yes, if if I can get a few million and sign a left-back, then I can't really say no to a pre-season tournament or to this Amazon documentary. And I think that's exactly what the situation is here. Do you know what I hear, Chris, when I hear pre-season American tournament? Hot on the time road trip. That's what I hear. Let's have a cookout, baby. It. It's Miller time. Let's do it. Come on. 
By the way, by the way, Fulham have Fulham have actually replaced uh, Leeds in that tournament already for the reasons. Uh, have they, Chris? Yeah, yeah. Oh well, there we go. So there we go. Um, also, our Brentford correspondent Jay Harris uh, wrote about Thomas Frank's anti-Tyndall plan. Uh, which didn't work, did it, George? <laughs> no, it, it didn't. I mean, having expressed my admiration for for Brentford, which is genuine, I mean, I think um, I think uh, I have to say it was a very strange walk from 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 the station to the ground because you know they've got this beautiful new stadium, but you don't actually see it outside. It's like the anti St James's Park. Yeah, you it's get you, yeah low, you get it? into the away end through a, a block of flats, a, b- a block of apartments, and then suddenly you're inside. You don't actually see it. Anyway, wow. with, they're, they're a brilliant club and they're a really good team. They're one of the stories of the season. They deserve all the credit. I do think, however, there was something very quite funny from a Newcastle perspective um, about the saltiness of Thomas Frank after the after the match, about sort of everything. I mean, yes, about Jason Tyndall and influencing the fourth official. Uh, he also talked about the sort of gamesmanship of around yeah. Ivan Tony and the penalty and things. It was quite interesting to see them do what uh, Kieran Trippier had done recently for Newcastle for the second penalty where... Tony only got the ball very late on, even as if people didn't know. I know, I know, but take that penalty. Come on! But the other thing he did, and I think we have to now do this. Every, in fact, I I meant to do this all the way through the podcast. Maybe I've not mentioned him. I'm not sure. But we have to, from this point forward, only refer to Alexander Isak as 63 million pound striker Alexander Isak. Yeah, which was how Thomas Frank's full name very, very pointedly (laughs) remarked him. Then he gave it the ball to Thomas Isak, 63 million pound striker. Or we have to give every single footballer their their price tag as they as they came with it. But yeah, I thought that was hilarious. There is history between uh, Frank and Tyndall because in in the very first game of the Howe era, when Tyndall was actually performing the hybrid Howe Tyndall rule because Howe wasn't available uh, due <laughs> to right, due yeah. to COVID. There were several moments where Thomas Frank did tell him to f off on the touchline because Tyndall was was very much <laughs> telling him so. So yes, so I think oh, there is man. history there. Salty, salty Frank. On a, on a stag do, Jason Tyndall's the first one getting sent home, isn't he? Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So for this next story, we could probably do with swapping in George Smiley and Christopher Steele, but we've got you guys, so you'll have to put your international intrigue hats on. Uh, Late last week, the Athletics' Adam Crafton, using a Freedom of Information request, obtained a large cache of government emails. These messages show that Boris Johnson and his government, contrary to their official position, were in favour of the PIF bid for Newcastle United and wanted to employ an inter... I can't say that word. Interlocutor. That's the one. Uh, they were in favour... You're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, Taylor. The emphasis. <laughs> interlocutor. Interlocutor. Yeah. Interlocutor. Uh, these messages show that Boris Johnson and his government, contrary to their official position, were in favour of the PIF bid for Newcastle United and wanted to employ an interlocutor to communicate that opinion to the Premier League. Uh, a remarkable bit of digging this by Adam Crafton. But first question, George, what is an interlocutor? And have I pronounced it correctly? Well, um, God knows about the second part of it. But um, <laughs> it, 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 it tallies in with... with um, yeah, with what we were saying and kind of writing at the time, which was that once the takeover or non-takeover, whatever it was at the time, it kind of got snarled, snarled up, that there was someone working on behalf of the government sort of shuttling between the Premier League and the other interested parties, which did suggest that um, that the government were helping, if that's the right word, were certainly intervening. And, you know, that, that made sense. It made sense politically with what was happening with the government at the time, which was attempting to, uh, you, uh, you know, levelling up was their, was their catchphrase and the red wall and all the rest of it. And the idea that Saudi would want to invest in one way, shape or form in the northeast of England was something that very much fitted in with their, with their policy. Yes, it's taken a long time by Adam, and it is a remarkable piece of journalism. I'd urge you to read it if you subscribe. And if you don't subscribe, why the hell not? 
but it, it it is all laid bare that 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 sort of stuff that contrary to what they were saying in public that they didn't have a uh, kind of an official position on it that they you know they weren't pushing for it behind the scenes it was a different story and if we remember we don't really want to remember because it was such a painful time but it did go into a political element where not only were Newcastle fans uh, pushing MPs and writing to MPs and all the rest of it, but the government itself were involved behind the scenes. Yeah, and a, a scripted line written for government officials by the UK's Deputy Ambassador to Saudi Arabia gives us a strong sense of the government's attitude towards this. And it goes like this. It's not for Her Majesty's government to intervene in the buying and selling of football clubs, but Her Majesty's government is not neutral about the UK's relationship with Saudi Arabia. It is a crucial and valuable relationship with an important partner regionally and globally. The purchase of Newcastle United by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund would be a valuable boost to the relationship and signal of intent for further Saudi investment in the northeast. It's interesting stuff, this Chris, isn't it? Because you know, it's it's important that we know who's who's running this football club, and it's important that things like this get out into the public domain. It is, and I mean, George made this point a few weeks ago, and there was this big push for transparency, rightly, from Newcastle United fans. And when the takeover happened, that sort of disappeared, and we still haven't really had the answers. And and all this confirms to me. The whole thing was a massive charade. Two weeks before the takeover, or less than two weeks before the takeover was confirmed, I was sat on Zoom listening to the the competition appeals tribunal case between Newcastle and the Premier League, which was all a charade of its own accord. The government being involved, not being involved, all seems to be a bit of a a charade. They they repeatedly insist within these emails that they are a neutral position, and yet make it quite clear that that they would like to know in advance and also that it would be to the benefit of the UK as they saw it if this takeover went through. And it's just, the whole thing has just been shady from the very start. It's very frustrating, and, and it confirms as well this idea that Everything was on Newcastle United fans at the time. That you know, you you they they were the ones who were told or were asked, "What do you? Why have you accepted this takeover? Why aren't you challenging this takeover?" And yet, the government was was involved. The Premier League ultimately ratified it in the end, gave the phrase about uh, le- legally binding assurances and all this sort of stuff. And it just confirms to me how murky the whole thing's been from the very start. It's very frustrating. And Adam has just brought more of that to light by being able to to get these uh, emails out in the public domain. Yeah, and I, I don't want to sort of minimise, you know, the idea or, or notion of sports washing. It's something that we should we should all think about as as Newcastle fans and what it means. But I think it, this does offer a bit of background about that and some of the stuff. You know, you you do get accused of what aboutery if you talk about Saudi investments elsewhere and all the rest of it. But when you've got it in black and white here in the same sentence. As or, or the same paragraph as talking about buying a football club, you're talking about the government talking about an important partner regionally and globally. You sort of have that, and then also talking about the valuable boost to the relationship and all the rest of it. That it isn't just a one way street. You know, there are bigger pictures about investment, and there are bigger pictures about relationships that the that this country has with other countries. Not stuff that football fans can control the one 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 side issue um that is is more actually connected to sort of that the earlier point that we talked about whether it, when pif's investment in live golf and all the rest of it and we heard about that court case that's happening in america and how that contrasts to what the premier league was told here i do think you know I, again you think back to that richard masters saying that you know the premier league have have it within their power to, to sort of readdress the takeover if it's found that PIF or there was government, there was Saudi in, involvement in the running of Newcastle. Now, in some ways, that's astonishing that football fans don't know what those sanctions would be, yeah. don't know what could happen. Does that just mean that PIF get kicked off the board of Newcastle if they're found to have done something wrong? If I mean, it's it's pretty astonishing that the state that the most important people at the club, the people who who hold it in in their hearts and carry on that relationship down over generations, don't know that sort of stuff. And that's what I mean when I when I say that transparency is important. That shouldn't just be about why the takeover didn't happen at the time. It should be about what happens moving forward. I think. Football, and particularly in the Premier League, has got a really shitty attitude to openness. Mm. Yes, it's a business. We understand that. There can be commercial sensitivities about certain things. But why not just be open? Why not be honest and have transparency at the very heart of 
everything. Absolutely. And also a, a quick mention for Jacob's excellent profile of Yasser Al-Ramayan as well, which provided some really interesting reading, uh, not just about the man himself, but about what it's like to work for the Saudi government and the PIF. Um, quickly as well, just before we finish off, um, a Qatar-based bid for Manchester United and reports of lobbying by the Premier League clubs against state affiliate owners mean that all of this sort of stuff isn't going away, is it, Chris? No, it, it's not going away. And it, it's, it's unfortunately, I think we knew that and again, as I said at the time when the takeover happened, that this is this is not a story which is suddenly just going to disappear. Newcastle and this situation are now inextricably linked, and the questions will keep being asked. It will keep being raised by other Premier League clubs, by Amnesty National, by others, and it, it very much is a wait and see. Nobody can say definitively what is going to happen with all that going forward once as a regulator. I mean, I think it'll be very difficult to unpick everything that's happened yeah. with Newcastle United so far. I don't necessarily see how that would, particularly now that we know that the government showed a keenness for the takeover to go through but equally there could be another government in in, in 18 months two two years time and it is a story that's going to rumble and no supporters a lot of supporters are sick of it and don't yeah. want it to still be around yeah but it is and it is it is going to continue it's not an issue which is disappearing from football anytime soon Chelsea were very much the you know the the, the trendsetters in this regard when they welcomed Abramovich and Russian money to their club but at the same time our government and our state and our nation was welcoming Russian money into London into the city into all sorts of investments everywhere now the country bent over backwards for that money until the point came when Russia becomes unacceptable and at that point everything changes but the question you know and I I, I think this is I think that's a kind of lesson for us, or it's something interesting for us to consider at the back of our minds when we think about Saudi. But at the same time, that was the deal that that changed everything. And I think, you know, money, money, we said this repeatedly at the time of the takeover, money won the argument in the Premier League years and years and years ago. It's very difficult to change that. Of course, some Premier League clubs are lobbying against state-affiliated owners, but why are they doing that? It's because it's self-interest. It's not because they have the wider interest of Premier League or the foot or football at heart. It's because they want to be able to compete. And the more state-affiliated owners come into the Premier League, the harder it is for those clubs to compete. You know. So, yeah, it's sort of huge, huge issues. It's it's massive things. I mean, it's. I would I would urge people to to have a to have a read of Adam's piece though it's it's absolutely fascinating. Definitely check that out, and it's important we continue to have these uh, these conversations. Right, let's have a little quick break before we wrap things up and talk about the lasses. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. So Sunday we'll see the Newcastle United women's team take on Bradford at St James's Park. Becky Langley's squad are currently six points behind league leaders Durham Sestria, but with two games in hand. And Becky spoke to George late last week before the whole game, and she was delighted with the team's performances. Yes, we are thrilled, George. I think the momentum and kind of the consistency of the group across pretty much the whole season. I know we had a little bit of a bumpy start with injuries, but has been absolutely fantastic. The group and especially that back four and Grace as a back five have been absolutely outstanding the last few weeks. And yeah, we couldn't be happier with the girls. They're really focused. They are very much looking forward to the game at St. James's, but we'll just be taking it each game as it comes and, and staying focused on the game that's ahead of us. I mean, it's so tight in this division, isn't it? I mean, it is, it's a ridiculous division. People don't know. There's only one team promoted. But I mean, it's in your hands now, isn't it? I mean, there is, there's a Durham Sestria. They've obviously had a very good season as well. They've got a bit of a points margin, but you also know now that if you win all your games, you go up. Yes. So if we win the remaining five games, that's the points tally in our favour and we would gain promotion. We beat Durham and Sestria in our last home fixture against them 1 0. And you almost, you know, you have the buzz of that evening, you're excited and when you spend so much time, you know, with the girls and the hard work on the training pitch, you want to be excited in that moment and I think it is so important to enjoy the moment but at the same time not get ahead of yourself. So we brought ourselves back down to earth quite quickly the next day and honestly that training session after actually felt quite flat because you're on such a high and then you come crashing back down. But we built again into the weekend and got the three points against Norton. So I think it is just remaining focused and consistent. But we kind of spoke to the players of the day about 
that almost feeling like a false summit. So, yeah, we know we've still got some tough games in there. We've got Barnsley, we've got Leeds, we've got Hull, we've got Bradford, who are obviously fighting a relegation battle. So we know it's going to be tough. And I interviewed you for the Athletic at the start of the season. People can still check out that interview on the on the site. And I asked you about pressure at that point, and I thought it was very interesting. You you actually flipped that around and talked about the pressure you thought you would put on to other teams that they would sort of feel the pressure of playing a powerful force. I think that was the phrase that you used. Have you found that to be the case? Or have you found that all these other teams can sort of see Newcastle coming, that they know they're playing a big club now? Yeah, I think... Um... Every team that plays against us has got that extra fire in their belly because they want to beat the team who's got the club behind them and the team with the best resources and the best players, which understandably does put pressure on us because it's everyone's cup final. However, I do think that it remains the same. What I said previously, you know, you are playing a very strong Newcastle United women's team who will train more, will have extra resources. And we've we've learned our lessons from last season. You know, we've spent a long time licking our wounds last summer in the off season that we didn't quite get across the line and this year you know we're making sure we've got the right characters in the group to see out the job so we're using that experience of last year we didn't manage to gain the three points in our head-to-head last year so we ensured that we've done that this season so that it is in our hands. And it is a very exciting time for the club. I mean, again, I t- when I talked to you, I mean, I, th- I think it was the first couple of games of the season. It was that point, And it is the first season that the women's team has been under officially under the club's umbrella. It's your first season as a full-time manager. Can you explain to people just how much the club has changed over the last year and a bit? Oh, the change on and off the pitch has been absolutely astounding. The girls have access to more training facilities. We've went from training twice a week to now pretty much training five times a week, which is brilliant. The facilities we're able to access, you know, some of the fantastic training facilities at the men's training ground, which is brilliant. And this is the first year that kind of staff and players have not been volunteers. So actually paying the players to come into work is is really important because it kind of shifts the mentality that this is not just a hobby anymore. All those things, you know, really help the players because they're able to then use those finances to help them off the pitch, whether it's nutrition or extra gym memberships or it's paying their petrol so it's not out their own pocket. It's small things that make such a huge difference to the women I work with. But yeah, the club support's been fantastic. Having Sue come in as a head of women's football, having Dan Ashworth very quick to respond to anything we need is absolutely brilliant and his advice is so valuable. And I think I've previously spoken really highly of Murdad and Amanda and the owners in terms of wanting to support that women's team and giving us equal access I think is just so important so again I can't speak more highly of the staff behind the scenes at Newcastle and you know as much as other teams are probably jealous of the support we have I think it's just what's right for women's football and it's really important we support other women's teams to make sure that women's sport and women's football is on the up. These games at St James's Park, how special are they and how, how important are they, do you think, for the women's team? They're so special. They're, you know, moments for players and staff, which will be highlights of a lifetime. I think for me personally, to, to stand in that dugout and lead the team is just, you know, goosebump moments every time it happens. And it won't be something that players or staff take for granted. It's amazing the fan base that come out and support. And again, if you look not so far afield at you know Wolves or other teams in tier three and even in the championship and WSL they're not getting anywhere near the crowds that our women's team are at Newcastle so it's just credit to the Newcastle United supporters they want to come out and support players that are playing in a black and white shirt who want to win and you know we're aiming for promotion so we're going to need the Newcastle United support on the 16th of April because it will be a must-win game so you know, for us, it's, the first game there was kind of an end-of-season game, which it wasn't at all costs we had to win. The second game we played was different because it was an FA Cup feel and we knew if we didn't win the game, we were out of the FA Cup, so there was pre- a different type of pressure. But I guess for this one, it's almost the most important because we want to ensure we gain three points to ensure we get the job done and, and win promotion to Tier 3. And I don't want to put pressure on... <laughs> But uh, you, you know you've got you've got you've you've got some big games ahead between now and the end of the season. But if you could just talk a little bit about the the teams and the clubs and your long term long term goals. Yeah, absolutely. I think our short term goal this season has very much been we want to get into tier three. 
But when we get into tier three, we want to move quickly. Goes without saying, we want to get into the championship as quickly as we can, which makes, you know, the club a club where the best players in the northeast can come and play at the highest level. In our area currently, we've got Durham and Sunderland who are in the championship. Obviously, the investment started a lot earlier for those clubs, hence why they've already accelerated into the championship. And I think we want to be in there as quickly as possible so we can attract the best northeast talent. My ambitions are to take this team from Tier 4 right the way through to the WSL. And I think what a fantastic journey that will have been from when the club was very grassroots. You know, the girls were still washing their own kit and finances weren't weren't there because it was very much supported by the charity, which is Newcastle United Foundation. But I think now we've got the club's support, it just means that we can really fast forward everything and really kick on to the WSL as quickly as we can. There we go. Good to hear from Becky George. Is she in good spirits? Well, yes. Um, she certainly was last week, although uh, hmm. conceding a 97th minute equaliser, as they did at the weekend, drawing two all with Hull. I'm sure that'll have enraged her. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 such a tricky, interesting, fascinating, good position to be in. You know, Newcastle have had a really good season, but with only one team going up from the division they're in, Everything is on a knife edge. And so it means this game this weekend, you know, we know that the women's team have played at St. James's a couple of times before, but this is this is the biggest one, certainly in terms of the jeopardy and what's at stake. It was all in their hands last week. Win their games, they knew that they would go up, but yeah. they've obviously not done that. So Absolute heartbreaker, that penalty as well. Absolute heartbreaker. So it's an absolutely massive, massive, uh, massive game this weekend. You're going, Taylor. I am. So am I. I'm looking forward to it. I got, yep. I got season tickets, a couple of season tickets earlier this season. Having gone to the women's matches a few times, including with Chris, when he didn't share his uh, ham and peas pudding sandwiches, and I was absolutely <laughs> devastated. And just got really, over that, though, haven't you? No, I just yeah. thought that was a very <laughs> interesting insight into the man. Um, just you know, he's there, like on my ticket, on my season ticket, and he just cracked. I wasn't, a, I wasn't there on your season ticket. Whatever, this is factually incorrect. What, whatever. He, I'd bought uh, him a drink, and he then just <laughs> cracks open his own sandwiches. You didn't buy me a drink. I'll be honest. Well, what I'll be honest. <laughs> It's not often I'll sit here and defend Chris's little idiosyncrasies, but if you tried to get ham and peas pudding sandwiches off me, you would have to prize them out my cold dead hands. That's George. not true because you shared some with me on yes, the bus. But they were sharing sandwiches. I made them so there was enough for both of us. If I'd only made enough for me, you wouldn't have got near them. Don't pfft me, boy. Right. <laughs> Anyway, back to the women's team. Uh, two of their four remaining games are against Bradford, who are at the other end of the table. And the league title can still be in Newcastle's own hands, but there's zero margin for error now, as you mentioned, George, on a knife edge. And they do need to improve their goal difference. It's it's a massive game, Chris, isn't it? It's a huge, huge game, this. It is, and it's almost like, uh, if you look at the, the, the men's Premier League, the way that, that switched at the weekend, so that, that, that you have this where there's a team who are a few points ahead, but the team below has, has games in hand. That's exactly where Newcastle's women find themselves in there, the Manchester City of this situation behind uh, the Arsenal, which is Durham Sestri. I mean, Bradford are at the other end of the table. That gives Newcastle a significant advantage. The St. James's Park record is good. They've performed very well there previously. They're going to have the the crowd behind them. And, and the goal difference is they're three behind, which I think if they're going to make up the points, I think that they will almost certainly make that up. So I don't see the goal difference being too much of an issue, but but they need yeah. a confidence-boosting victory at St. James's this weekend. I think that could give them the positive momentum they need to turn this around. Absolutely. And uh, Maidad Gadusi's appeal to fans to get the attendance above that 30,000 barrier as well and ticket prices in a more kind of relaxed atmosphere I means a great opportunity to bring your family, including younger ones, uh, perhaps for their first ever experience of St James's Park George we want to get the noise up don't they they want to get as many people through the gates as possible absolutely and really intimidate you know intimidate the opposition give give the Newcastle team uh, that brilliant stage to play on and I would recommend it I'm not just saying this I mean I don't have any skin in this game apart from the fact that as I say I've got season tickets but I did it I did that because a, I wanted to support the the women's team, but also I loved it. You know, going to I've seen matches, a few matches at Kingston Park now, and it is a very special atmosphere. It very it completely feels like it's part of the Newcastle experience, which is lovely. There is a kind of great family atmosphere to it, and you know that with the way you know the demand for tickets to see the men's team at the minute is so ridiculous that this you know we don't want to lose a generation of of young fans we want to find a way of 
getting people indoctrinated into the into the into the club and of course it would help if St James is is expanded as uh, as they they've again talked about this week about looking to do that but it's a it's a lovely way to 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 experience football it is they play they play really well there are echoes of the men's team in the way they play they try and attack but there is a you know there's there's been a very really good atmosphere great seeing so many girls and young women there as well and yeah fingers crossed that they can do it it's such a ridiculous league it is so so tight they need all the uh, encouragement they can get definitely it should be a great day so get yourselves along tickets are only three pound i paid for my ticket three pound amazing stuff uh right then and before that the men head to villa park on saturday lunchtime a much tougher test on paper than it was a month or two ago villa actually going great guns recently in the league chris and uh, uh you and george have been writing a piece with greg evans our colleague about how and emery and the uh the interesting dynamic there is between those two yes i mean if we rewind to november 2021 which i don't think many people want to because at that point newcastle the takeover just happened so it was great in that sense but in terms of newcastle was still winless in the premier league and 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 looking like they were heading out of it the first choice manager that newcastle actually went for was unai emery it came down to emery and eddie howe and it was very very close but they they opted for emery mainly because of his if his experience his cv is the fact he'd won 11 uh, trophies throughout his managerial career and they approached him, and obviously it became a bit of a botched attempt. Now, the, the news leaked out. Um, it was on the eve of Villarreal playing a Champions League game against young boys, and so in the end, Unai Emery, who had seemingly been op- uh, positive about the, the move and seemingly willing to come to St James, is pulled out, and so Newcastle reverted to Eddie Howe. He then stayed at Villarreal, got them to the Champions League semi-final last season, but then he took over when Steven Gerrard was sacked at Villa Park earlier this season, and he has done an exceptional job there, or he's seemingly doing a very good job there. He's improved players, just as Eddie Howe did, uh, has done at Newcastle, who were already there. He's brought in some good additions in January, and he's got them playing in a confident, positive way. And so you can see almost the similarities in the way that he works as to the way that Eddie Howe has worked. But um, that sort of Sliding doors moment, I think no Newcastle fan and probably the owners themselves would not change what actually happened there, the way that it's worked out Eddie Howe, but this is going to be a very, very tough challenge this weekend, no doubt about that. Just doing this piece sort of, you know, forces you to go back and look back at everything that's happened and, um, you know, it's, again, it's it's kind of hilarious going back and looking at that thing that, you know, Eddie Howe was... Uh, was an attacking football evangelist, you know, who wasn't cut out for the relegation fight. You know, nice guy, Eddie. That's not what Newcastle need. Well, we haven't got nice guy, Eddie, have we? We've got tough guy, Eddie. Does that work as a... Absolutely. Does that work? Um, tough guy, Eddie. Tough guy, Eddie. But, you know, and the team, he's he's kind of built... He's built the team twice already. I mean, you know, last season turning them into a solid counter-attacking side. This time putting them much more on the front foot. But you know, yeah. the, this the, these defensive machines still the best defensive record in the Premier League. We wouldn't swap him for anybody. I mean, I guess it's quite nice to see that Emery is doing well in the sense that um, perhaps both of those people on the shortlist were the right kind of candidates. Yeah. And yeah, Emery has done at Villa the kind of job that Newcastle wanted. But um, yeah, we wouldn't swap Eddie for anybody. And, you know, when you look at all the stuff that's gone right, it's not just recruitment, although there hasn't really been a bad one yet. It's just been about making players better. I think that's the thing that the two that the two managers have in common. Does Unai Emery have a Jason Tindall-leg figure? Does he have a... Does, he have a, a, does anybody? Uh, does anybody really? Let's be honest. He's a one-off, isn't he? It's like the planets aligned. Jason Tindall was born. <laughs> Love the man. Love him. Love to go for a pint with him, just to see what he's like. It would be lager, would it? Do you think with with Mad Dog lager all the way? Surely, probably snake bite. I reckon snake bite and black currant, and then he'd accidentally spill it on your white shirt. <laughs> That's what, he, that's what he'd do. Diesel, pints of diesel for Jason Tindall. And he'd still have Dark that fruit. massive smirk that you see in all those he pictures. Would. I think it's all, yeah. yeah. Say something. Go on. Say something. <laughs> <laughs> Four pints of dark fruits, please, Jason. Right. Uh, let's wrap things up, chaps. It's been fun. Thanks a lot for, uh, for joining us. Get yourselves over to theathletic.com forward slash Newcastle pod where you can pick up subscription and pay just £1.99 a month for your first year. Thanks a lot, George. Thanks for your time. Yeah, it's been fun, hasn't it? That's uh, how, how nice it is to record a podcast after 
it just makes it easy, doesn't it? It makes it easy. Yeah, that's it. We all love a bit of easiness. Just breeze through. They just breeze through them. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you. I've enjoyed this one a lot more than last week, so yeah. For obvious reasons. Uh, Thanks a lot to all you lot out there for listening as well. From everybody at Pod on the Tyne, have a fantastic week. Take care. Goodbye. Athletic.